The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, if you would, last chapter of Matthew. And uh, I'm consciously, I'm going to try to consciously slow down just a little bit today as I talk, and this might take us a little bit longer to get through, but last week I was speaking so fast, I don't know if you even got everything that I was trying to say. So I'm going to try to slow down just a little bit today. And I have to be honest with you, as we come to this last chapter of Matthew, I'm trying to figure out three, four, five-part sermons just to prolong this ending so we don't have to, we don't have to move on from Matthew. Uh, I, I figured this out that 45% of my ministry in Berean Baptist has been in the Gospel of Matthew. That's not including uh, all the times that, uh, the odd times or irregular times that we use Matthew as a text for sermons. For instance, on Sunday nights we had a long series on the church and uh, Matthew 16:18 was the text verse for many, many sermons. And then we've used Matthew in looking at Lord's Supper observances and Matthew's account of that. So we've spent a lot of time here. So it's really been a huge part of the Berean ministry. Now we're down to the last 20 verses of this. And I don't know whether we should celebrate or cry. I don't know which to do. Uh, several have suggested to me that we just start over since it's been so long. And... Uh, Others of you would say, well, if you're going to do that, just shoot me right now. <laughs> I do want to finish this thing. Uh, I don't want Hannah Andrews to be married with five kids before we get done with this. Now, as it turns out, though, we, we shouldn't cry about it because we've reached the crescendo of God's symphony. And we're not really at the end here. We, we are at the beginning, a place that shows that we're all going to live forever. Believers are not going to die uh, we're going to change from one life to another. Even though we might die physically, that, that might happen to us. Yet, that's just described as sleep, according to the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Lazarus died, his sisters wept because he was dead. They came to Jesus and they really needed him. And he said, well, you don't really need to worry about that. He said, Lazarus is just sleeping. He's going to arise. And Martha caught on very quickly. She got the drift of what Jesus was saying. And she said, well, I know that he's going to rise in the last day at the resurrection. So as Christians, we know that death is really not problematic for us. Because Jesus arose, we will also arise. And death is nothing to us but a very brief sleep. Now we go to our text here in Matthew chapter 28. And here is the hope of every believer. We need to talk about the suffering of the cross. The death of Christ is certainly important. But neither of those give us any hope at all unless we have Matthew chapter 28. So this is the great crescendo, the crowning moment of Matthew's gospel. So if you'll read with me, let, let's stand once again, if you would. Matthew 28, beginning in verse number 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. 
And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for this great subject of the resurrection and the hope that it gives us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've just, of course, read one of the most recognizable stories in all the history of the world. This is a 2,000-year-old story, been told and retold many times. There are billions of people that have heard it, and actually in the world today, there are 2 billion people that claim that they believe the resurrection of Christ. And I know that there are many that don't have true biblical understanding of that. Many believe the facts of the resurrection, but they don't really have that mixed with true faith. And in the mix, there's a lot of bad doctrine. But nevertheless, there are facts concerning the resurrection, undeniable facts, that we look at them and we know that it has to be true because, as I said, they're just undeniable facts. In the last message, that's what we talked about. We spent all of our time just going through facts. That was number one on your listening sheet, the facts of the resurrection of Christ. Why should we believe the resurrection? How do we know that it's true? Well, if we investigate the facts, what would we see when we look? Well, I would start by saying this, even before we get to the facts, that historians say that the resurrection of Christ is true. I'd like you to turn to the first chapter of Luke, if you would, and we'll read what Luke has to say about it. And Luke was a very educated man. He was a physician, a Jew of the dispersion. That means that he was not a Jew that was born in uh, Israel, but rather he was, was one of those tribes that had been uh, sent out of Israel, captured by Israel many years before this. So he wasn't a Jew living in Israel. He was one of those tribes that had been deported, of the tribes that had been deported. So he's Jewish descent, but he lived in Antioch in Syria. And sometime about A.D. 65, Luke sat down to write a history of the events in Jesus' life. Now let's notice what he says in verse number 1, Luke chapter 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know, listen, the certainty of these things whereof thou hast been instructed. Luke was a credible historian. He wrote what eyewitnesses described to him. And the man that he was writing to is a man by the name of Theophilus, who most likely was a Roman official, and he had been converted to Christianity. And so this man was very interested in the accuracy of the accounts of Jesus' life. 
And so what Luke did was to sit down and write the history of what happened to Jesus. And uh, this man, Theophilus, was not interested in, in, any, uh, in anything other than just the accurate historical account. And that's exactly what Luke gave him. And yet you have evolution that people believe. And evolution is what? It's a theory. It's a theory. And it remains a theory, an unproven theory, even though proponents of evolution don't or actually know that evolution is not observable in the world today. And what is science? Science is, is uh, observable empirical evidence. And by their own definition, evolution couldn't be true or it could be anything other than a theory. And so they just say the Bible is wrong. But eyewitness accounts are not theory. These are not made-up claims. They are observed. And what is observed always trumps what you think might have happened. This was seen. And that's the basis for a lawyer saying that there's plenty of evidence to show that the resurrection is true. But you know this, to accept the resurrection is to bring you face-to-face with the one who caused it. That God did something there that involves you personally. And so you don't have the option of, of, of not dealing with God. You have to do something with the facts that have been presented. So people hate the resurrection and they dispute it despite all the facts that there are because they don't want to come face to face with God. Because this is the God who's going to judge them according to what Jesus did. And so what do they do? Well, that comes next. Number two is the falsehoods. They're falsehoods. And let me address this very briefly because next time we're going to look at the fantastic fable that was told to hush the truth. We know there are many witnesses of the resurrection. There was an angel that testified. Probably there were thousands of angels at the scene. Some appeared, but most of them did not. Angels are spirits. They don't manifest themselves unless God tells them to or needs them to. But there were some of them that the people could see and they testified of Jesus' resurrection. There were guards that were there and they saw that the stone was rolled away. They saw the angel and they were so afraid of that that they, were, they fainted. And when we get to verse number 11, we see that they testified to the chief priest about it. There were many women that were there at the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene had a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. The disciples also came to the empty tomb and and then Jesus appeared to them, two of them on the road to Emmaus. They were in a locked room, and Jesus appeared to ten of them. A week later, they're in a locked room, and he appears to the eleven. Then Jesus appeared to James, his half-brother. He appeared to 500 witnesses at once, and then he appeared to the apostle Paul. And so there were multiple appearances of Jesus before all of these many different people during 40 days after he'd risen from the grave until he ascended into heaven. And then the apostle Paul, the, the appearance to him, happened long after Jesus had ascended to heaven. But as I said, despite all the evidence, hard hearts need to tell a lie. They have to get around it some way. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that in order to have a resurrection, you have to have someone who's really dead. Do you remember how we talked about that there... Are, are, are some people that lie about the fact that Jesus was really dead. Now, you know, you've got this problem of the lie that's told later that we are going to talk about later, as I said. You've got the problem of that lie. That lie is so fantastic that people know, well, we can't depend on that. So they start with another thing, another lie. They've got to talk about how Jesus wasn't really dead. And so uh, they say things like this, that, that in the coolness of the tomb, 
that what happened, Jesus was taken down from the cross, and then in the coolness of that tomb, he revived. And then he got up and he rolled the stone away or someone helped him do that. So we're supposed to believe that a guy with his hands and feet that had been nailed to a cross, uh, a man who had a spear that was thrust through his side up into his heart, a man who had gone into a coma and then was presumed to be dead and had a hundred pounds of ointments on rags that were soaked with these ointments and then wrapped around his body, that this man woke up in the coolness of the tomb from his coma and he got up and he took the grave clothes off and then he very carefully arranged them. A man that was so bad off that people thought he was dead, a man that had been scourged and beaten so badly that his bones were exposed, that a man in that condition who hadn't eaten anything for three days and he hadn't drunk anything for three days got up and moved that heavy stone and left the tomb. And I'll tell you this, that the theories for this only get worse from there. They say that, well, the body never got into the tomb. That's one of them as well. It was a hallucination. When they saw, thought they saw Jesus, that was a hallucination. It was mental telepathy. And I don't know, well, I know that they didn't know this term, but you can be sure that if it happened today, the people will say, oh, it must have been a hologram. That's what it was. It wasn't really Jesus. And so people would rather believe all of that or any of that than just the very plain evidence that's presented in the Word of God that Jesus arose from the dead. We know that something happened there. Secular historians admit that something happened there. So the next thing we just have to say is, what's your theory, Darwin? How do you think it happened? Well, that brings us then to, thirdly, the faith. From time to time, an article will come out in a magazine or a newspaper, a new book will be written, a TV show is made, and they'll talk about a search for the historical Jesus. Whenever you see that, throw the magazine away, throw the book away, turn off the television show, you can even throw your TV away, because what you're going to hear is somebody who is going to deny the Scriptures. But let me tell you something else. You can insulate yourself from all of that. You, you can protect yourself from it. You can say, well, I know the facts of this. I see the facts. I believe the facts. I, I know the real history of it. But that doesn't actually mean that you're a real Christian. Maybe I've convinced somebody about facts. I don't know. God testified to facts. And so only the willfully ignorant can get around this. But accepting facts does not mean that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just because you believe the facts, facts that nobody could figure out how to get around in any other way, that does not mean that you're ready and set to go to heaven. Believing the facts is not going to help you. Christianity is supported by facts, that's true, but Christianity itself is not facts. Christianity is faith, and the faith is not in the facts. The faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. So now let me tell you how important that the resurrection is to our faith. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is the comprehensive doctrine of the resurrection chapter. Matthew 28 is a facts chapter. It's a historical chapter. And 1 Corinthians contains some facts. And then it goes into the theology of the facts. And there's more theology here than we're able to cover today. There's 58 verses of this. But we're going to read just a very, very small part, and this is a part that is so clear that it just really doesn't need much, much explanation. 
So let's begin at verse number 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. The first 11 verses are some of the facts and the eyewitness accounts and so on. And then Paul follows up with the theology of the resurrection that's dependent upon the facts. So verse number 12, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now these are the theological implications of what would be true if Jesus' body was stolen or if the women went to the tomb and they actually did find a body in the tomb. What would that be? Well, first, of course, it would mean there's no resurrection. If you go back to the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the resurrection is a part of the gospel. So how are they going to preach the gospel if there is no resurrection? Now, there was a problem in Corinth. In Corinth, there were some that were teaching that there is no bodily resurrection. And if that's true, then how are they going to go about preaching the gospel? Because if there is no resurrection, of course, that means that Christ was not raised. Then secondly, Paul says in these verses that there's no sensible reason to preach if he arose or preach that he arose if there is no resurrection. And your presence here today would be only to experience the air conditioning or perhaps the wonders of my unique oratory. That might be why you come. And then thirdly, he says, your faith in the gospel is invalidated. Fourthly, Christian preachers have been lying to you. We say that Christ arose, but he didn't. Fifthly, dead people do not and will not arise. Sixthly, all the sins that you thought that you were saved from are still there. And seventhly, every person that you thought and they thought had salvation are actually dead like dogs or they are in hell. Now those are some radical conclusions from seven verses of Scripture. But I've actually left one out. That's verse number 19 where he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, if our belief in Christ makes us happy, even though he didn't really arise from the dead, but just believing that, if that makes us happy in some way, maybe you might consider that to be a win. I mean, after all, you found something that gives a little bit of joy to your life. But if Christ did not arise from the dead... And you just believe that. Is that really a, a joyful way to spend your life? Well, actually, it's not because what we find out about Christians, and you should know already, that Christians are exposed to the worst ridicule there is. You experience it right here in the area in which we live. Christians are ridiculed for our belief. We're even told you can't speak about it. Brother Dalton and I were talking about just a, a little while ago before, uh, before church started, how that, you know, in, in his... In his uh, workplace, that there are certain rules and principles that you can't approach these kinds of religious subjects. You're not supposed to talk about that. They, people don't want to hear about this. So is it really a win? 
Well, the Apostle Paul explains, no, it's not a win at all. Because it, it exposes you to all this ridicule. In the same 15th chapter, Paul talks about being thrown to the lions at, at Ephesus. Verses 30 through 32, he talks about that. And he says, then why don't we just do this? Why don't we just forget all about the resurrection? Let's forget all about the gospel. Let's forget all about Jesus coming out of that tomb. And let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Because we're going to die. Eventually, we're going to die. And then, you have to think about this. What if there is an afterlife? What if there actually is an afterlife? Most of the Greeks and Romans, they did believe that there was an afterlife. And so what if you uh, come down to the end and you discover that it's worse than you thought because you didn't put all of your efforts in to trying to find the right way to get to heaven? I mean, you spent all your time dealing with Jesus Christ, but he's dead and he's in a tomb. So if he's dead and in the tomb, then that means that Christ is not able to get us there. He can't get us to heaven. He's dead and so will we be. So Paul says to the Corinthians, do you have a clue at all what it means if Christ in his body did not arise from the dead? If he is still dead, Christianity is dead. We have to preach the incarnation of Christ. We preach the life of Christ. We preach the cross of Christ. We preach the death of Christ. We preach the burial of Christ. But every bit of that is invalidated if Christ did not arise from the dead. All of that's less than nothing if the resurrection is not true and we preach it as true. So this is what we do. We receive it, we preach it, we, we preach it as true, we believe it as true, we receive it as true, or else we have no faith. Do you understand that? That's how important that the resurrection is to us. So what I want to show you is then that, that we can't trifle with the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul went on to say that that Christ was raised for our justification. And that means that it was the, the, the resurrection that showed that God put his stamp of approval on what Christ did. That validated what Christ did. So if Christ is not alive, there is no justification. And that is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. So you see that you can't trifle with this idea of the resurrection. In, in Christianity... There is one particular day of the week that focuses on this truth. And did you know that there is no other doctrine in the Word of God that gets its own special day? There is none. The resurrection is so important that God has set aside a special day to commemorate it. It shows us that it's a very critical truth. Do I have to ask you what that day is? I hope not. It's Sunday, the day that Jesus arose from the dead. But I find it very peculiar that today's Christians have no sense that worshiping on Sunday is essential to correct worship. They have no sense of knowing that Sunday is a day kept for religious purposes and that God has preserved that as a principle of his law. It's a principle of God's law for us as Christians to observe this day of the week, the first day, because of the resurrection. And because people don't see that, and they don't regard the resurrection as being all that important, it's why churches stopped having services on Sunday night. They stopped using the Lord's Day as a day to worship Him. And so now you have churches that have Saturday worship. And Saturday is called the New Sunday. And they teach that you can go to church on Saturday or Sunday, or choose another day of the week if you want. You choose the day that best fits into your schedule 
Because you need more weekend time. Your time is much more important than the resurrection. And that's what's being taught to people in the Christian church today. So we've done away with Sunday night services and done away with using Sunday as the day that we worship the Lord and we just crawl into church for an hour on Sunday morning if we can. If we can, because we're not really worshiping God, we're worshiping our weekends. That's what's most important to us. And so we pick another day of the week. Pick Saturday. Get, it, get your worship time over with on Saturday. Then you got the rest of the weekend to do what you want to do. And by the way, I have said this before too, Sunday's not the weekend, Sunday's the first day of the week. It's not the weekend, it's the week beginning. And so we've said, well, the week beginning, the week beginning, we're going to start off by doing our own thing and forgetting about God. God says, start your week off with Him. So you, you, can, you can think that this is harsh, you may think that this is too much, and you can think that you can just take it or leave it according to Sunday. But I'm telling you, we are here to worship. And it's because of this one thing. Because of the resurrection of Christ. And that means that it's not ball time. And it's not beach time. And it's not camping time. And it's not shopping time. And it's not yard time. It's God's time. That's what Sunday is. Now let me show you something else about the resurrection and the faith. We're going to take just one book of the Bible... And we're going to go through it, and we're going to look for the resurrection. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. So get your Bibles out. We're going to look. Acts chapter 2. And I'm not going to start with Acts chapter 1, even though it does talk there about 40 days that Jesus appeared after he had risen. Acts is very important because it gives us the history of the church in the first century, and it records the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the world. It tells us what they preached as they went and I want you to notice, in the very first sermon that was preached after God had empowered the church with the Holy Spirit, on the, in the very first sermon, there's mention of the resurrection. This is Peter's sermon on Pentecost, and we're just going to read the part that's pertinent to our subject. Acts 2, verse 23. This is Peter preaching. Him, that's Jesus Christ, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, there he's talking to the Jews, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now go down to verse number 30. Therefore being a prophet, and that's speaking of David, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, that is, to sit on David's throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now let's go to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 14. This is Peter speaking in the temple after the healing of the lame man. What does he say to the people at the temple? He says, But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Then verse 26, he says, Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So there we see Peter, after the day of Pentecost, preaching to them again. And what's his subject? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we go on to chapter 4. The same story is continuing. Verse number 1. 
And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Then in verse 10, Peter speaks to the Sanhedrin, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. That's the lame man. Verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now we go to chapter 5. This is after the apostles have been put in prison for preaching the resurrection of Christ, and they have been miraculously released by an angel, and they were caught by the Jewish authorities again. And in verse number 30 it says, they say this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Now turn a few pages over to chapter 10. And this is where Peter goes to Cornelius to preach to him. And let's see the message that Peter gave to Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, starting at verse number 39. He says to him, to Cornelius and his family, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. Now we go to chapter 13. Here we find Paul in his first missionary trip, and he's preaching in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. And as part of his message, Acts 13, verse number 29, he, tell, he, talks, about, he talks about this, and just listen to all that Paul has to say about it. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen... Many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And it's concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Now I want you to go to chapter 17. And here we find Paul preaching again. This time he's in Thessalonica which, by the way, was just before he went to Berea. This is in Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was. Now that means that's his, this is his regular course of action. This is what he always did. He went into the synagogues, and this is what he preached. As Paul And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Go down a little bit further in the chapter to verse number 18, and now Paul has traveled to the city of Athens. And at Athens, it says, Then certain, this verse 18, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? 
others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now down to verse number 30. Acts 17, 30. And the times of this ignorance, Paul says, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Now there we see Paul's going place to place, preaching the same things over and over again, the resurrection. Now in those particular verses, you can see that judgment is established because of the resurrection. Christ is alive and that ensures that you must do something about him because he's going to judge you. Now we go to chapter 23. And this is Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. This was after he was captured at the temple, taken prisoner at the temple, and eventually led to him being sent to Rome. But in chapter 23, verse number 6, And when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Now we go to verse or chapter 24, and this is Paul giving his defense before Felix the governor. And what is he talking to Felix about? Well, verse 14. He says, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, that is, the Jews call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, down in verse number 21, he's explaining to Felix, he said, there's only one charge that's been laid against me. What is this one charge? He says, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And of course, the resurrection of the dead, he's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 25, we find Festus here explaining to Herod Agrippa, the Jews charge against Paul. Acts 25, verse 19. And he says, But they had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. See, this is the whole problem with Paul. He's affirming that Jesus is alive. The resurrection is a problem for people. Now, chapter 26. Here Paul asked Herod a question about the resurrection of the dead. He says, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And then after giving Agrippa his own testimony of what happened on the road to Damascus, he explained to him what he usually preached. That's in verse 22. Having therefore ordained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Now, do you get the picture of what's going on here in the book of Acts? These apostles, they're all preaching the resurrection. It's central. And when you see that there's only a comment that they preached Christ, what was it that they preached? Oh, they're preaching the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection. So you can't preach Christ without the resurrection. 
The Christian faith is a dead faith without the resurrection. That's because Christianity is not a philosophy. Other religions are just philosophy. Christianity is Christ. Now, very quickly, I need to get into the last one, the facts, the falsehood, the faith. And then this last one, the fruits, the fruits. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm getting a Bible workout here today. And I've left out many, many scriptures that we could go through. I mean, we could go through the entire New Testament. We could find these scriptures about it. But I mentioned this particular scripture at the beginning, so we'll make it a part of the conclusion. Now, notice very carefully this important statement. We'll start at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, here's his statement. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. If we believe. It's necessary to believe. And according to to this verse, what happens to those who believe that Jesus died and rose again? What happens is they'll be raised. And here you see that Death is just a short nap for a Christian. God raised Jesus, and he'll also raise all others that died with their faith in him and in faith, with faith in the resurrection. Now, the Bible calls those who are raised by Jesus the fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the first fruit. He's the first to arise under his own power, and the same power that raised Jesus will also raise us. So you hold on to... 1 Thessalonians 4, just a minute. Let me read Romans 8, 11. But the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. When's that going to happen? Well, that's verses 15 and 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ will go up when Christ returns. Now what happens then to those that are living? That's in verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the living are going to be caught up. And as you know, the Latin translation uses the word rapturo. That's for caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. And so we go back now to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, let me just read that to you, where Paul writes in verse 20. Now, now remember he said, if... if if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we're of all men most miserable. But then he says, we're not actually miserable because verse 20 says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So the Bible likens the rapture to, and the idea of Christians going up into heaven as a great harvest. There's a great gathering up. It's referring to the Old Testament. In, in the Old Testament, there were fruits that were gathered. The first fruits were the guarantee that a, another harvest is coming, or the rest of the harvest is coming. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is. It's the guarantee that more are going to follow. And believers are those fruits that follow. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
And I hope you understand what happens if you don't believe. Christ is going to come and you'll be left behind. There's another harvest. And that harvest is a sickle, the Word of God describes, that is thrust in and then the earth is reaped. And in that harvest, those that are reaped are cast into the winepress of God's wrath. Those are two drastically different endings. And so it depends not only what you believe about the resurrection, the facts and so forth, not only what you believe, but it also depends on who you believe. What do you believe about him, the who of the resurrection? Now, there's a whole lot more that I'd like to say about this, but you're already thinking this isn't going to end to the rapture, so we're going to try to finish up here. And let me conclude with just this thought, that death goes out because of the resurrection. Death is defeated because of it. If Christ did not rise, then death rules not him. Now you read the end of 1 Corinthians 15, and there it tells us that death is swallowed up in the victory of Christ's resurrection. Paul said that you need to know the hope of your calling. You need to know this because this is actually the great hope that you have, and you need to understand the power of God in those that believe. That he made our justification, our salvation, our sanctification, and our resurrection to glory to be a sure thing. All of it's guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. So he writes in Ephesians chapter 1, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. There's our hope. Christ lives. And as Peter said, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message from the Word of God today. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we shall live. It's the only hope that we have. Lord, help us not to take our Sundays and make them something else other than what you have said we need to be doing, and that is to honor the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have no idea what we're doing when we kick the resurrection to the curb and say that it's not important. No, our Sundays are important for worship to you because of this central issue, this central fact that makes it all real. And that is you've risen from the dead. Thank you, Father. Open someone's eyes, someone's eyes to the truth of the gospel of Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.